Namaste, motherfuckers, and welcome to Tantric Conversation, episode number 72, Sean McLean. Sean McLean is, of course, the frontman for Chrome Daddy Disco. He's been around Richmond for like 30 years, I think he says, and he's also one of the owners of Banditos and been doing that for many, many years, and um, I have never really had this long of a conversation with him before. I'd say had a fair amount of small talk conversations in passing and maybe even more frequently than that just a nod what's up but I've 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 known of him and we've had mutual friends and um, lots of you know fuck I don't know mutual acquaintances mutual friends mutual ex-girlfriends I don't know not a lot but some but yet never really sat in the same room and had this kind of a conversation. It was really great to sit down and talk to him about all kinds of different stuff. And I am I'm at that point where I am, you know, I'm interested in how a person takes their upbringing and turns it into art, but I'm also really interested in how, you know, a person decides to become a business person and becomes a decent, successful business person and employs people and is uh, contributes in that way to the fabric of the town you know, we talk to a lot of creative people on here, but we don't talk to a lot of business people. And I, it's cre- I think it's creative to be a business person, and it requires a lot of the same um, in, in, ingenuity, in, intuition, ideas, um, creativity, all kinds of things. It's it's the same mechanism I think that you apply to running, starting a business, running a business, and uh, all the things that that entails that you put into being in a band. And, you know, bands have to be businesses, too. And if they're not, you're going to get ripped off by somebody else who's into business and takes over your band and takes all your money. We know that story. So, Sean is both of those things. He's a musician and a businessman. And the two things are together and the two things are separate. And I really enjoyed talking to him. And we had bro time talking more outside afterwards. i uh been really, like, needing to talk to dudes lately and just kind of work shit out because I broke up with somebody in February I think for the last time and we've been on and off for a while and it is only just in the last month that it has really been something that's been bothering me and I've been like really struggling with it and um, you know I mean, found out that she got married that kind of uh, kind of threw me for a loop seemed awful sudden not that it's any of my business and you know I did a lot of that kind of denial of a breakup denial of like no contact like emailing shit and I gotta tell you man you know say anything it really sold you a false bill of goods if you stood outside of a woman's window with a boombox that's a restraining order these days people don't find that shit romantic or appealing no means no no contact means no contact but I don't know if you've ever been there stalking somebody on Facebook and just trying to find out what their life is like now that you're broken up just so you can feel that fucking disgusting agony. And Well, you know, I don't know. There must be some kind of benefit in it because I will go for it. I will go for that feeling, that shitty, like, knife-in-the-chest feeling of seeing an ex-girlfriend with somebody else. You know, especially somebody that, you know, I was serious about, lived with, all that kind of stuff. And... 
I really have done a number on myself over the last month, just like sticking my fucking hand in the hornet's nest over and over again. And I think I'm finally done with it, and I hope I am. Anyway, that's such a hard thing to come to terms with. You know, it's just a breakup. You know, it's just, yeah, and I've been through my share of those. It's like the, I've lost count how many times I've been through this kind of thing. But whatever, I guess you're done when you're done. It's kind of like with some of the other things like in my life, like substance abuse. Open that bottle up and know it's not going to go anywhere good and still fucking do it over and over again until you're just done. And it, the suckitude of doing it outweighs the benefit, whatever the benefit is. So it was good to talk to Sean for a while about that sort of thing afterwards too. Commiserate about women and, uh, you know, but look, I mean, I got to, I get to control the narrative because I got a podcast and all that kind of stuff, you know, was bugging my ex, sending her emails, she kept telling me to stop, I kept sending them, and, uh, you know, you gotta understand, I mean, I'm not a stalker, I'm not crazy, but it's fucking hard to let that shit go sometimes, it's hard to really, like, honestly believe that somebody doesn't want to talk to you anymore, especially when nothing all that major happened, you know, but, it's true. It happens. People don't want to hear it. They don't want it. They just want you out of their life. And you got to accept that sometimes. So that's where I've been at. And uh, maybe that's a little oversharing, a little TMI. But fuck it. It's my process. If you don't like it, you can skip it. So let's get on into Sean now. Show on. I'm starting it rolling. CLM. Okay, go ahead. It's going. Go ahead. Tell your story. Oh, a little story on CLM. Just saying that me and Chris Bobst and John Pardon had a little sports talk radio show on this trifling little radio station on Hall Street, WCLM. It's yeah. Like, yeah, I forget what the numbers are, 1480 or something uh-huh. really crazy. And it's all African-American programming, of course, except our show, More on Sports. More on Sports. <laughs> a couple of years, it was fun, it was WCLM, so I'd say, hey, give us a call, Jam the Clam. The owner didn't love that too much, but hey, it was my thing. It was my line. <laughs> yeah, so um, we were talking about this neighborhood here. You know, the the perception yeah, of these kinds of neighborhoods is that they're blighted, they're dangerous, but this is just blighted now. It's just ugly. You know? Well, that's just where all the drug dealing news on the uh, information on the news comes from. The courts, the Gilpin courts. I don't even know where that is. True. Exactly. Gilpin courts north of Broad. I mean, there is definitely the kind of street dealing that you see on the wire going on in those places. But um, as long as, you know, I mean, there's an occasional, I think, a turf Sure. Thing. <laughs> Most of the time it's just people copping and moving on. There isn't an yeah. over-education problem here. Mm-hmm. There's no over-education problem there going on here. Mm-hmm. But, you know, to be fair, I mean, they cut up the whole black section of downtown with some highways before my time here, whatever mm-hmm. the story is, and kind of stuck people over here. Yeah. Like in these courts, so to speak. And, you know, I don't, I don't think they like that any more than Israel or these other countries like being, you know, stuck in their little places after World War II. Right. You know what I mean? There's always yeah. going to be some problems. Uh, it's the reason they were nicknamed the ghetto, I guess. Right. Because the original ghettos were in Germany and were the Jews. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't know what the history of this shit is, but it's like, it strikes me that this was this is relocation shit, right? So they be. tore up the neighborhoods for various things. The expressway, 
95, the Coliseum, all these different things. That whole thing down there where the Frisbee golf course is, yeah. that was a neighborhood. Like a neighborhood just like this, like blocks and blocks of houses. And uh, it was just black people, so the hell with yeah, it. Yeah, like, so they were a general attitude, I think. Break it yeah, up yeah, and yeah. put them all over here. And um, yeah, it's. Uh, it's a, so there's going to be problems. You know, I'm, I'm, it's always trying to up and come, and I'm sure eventually it'll probably gentrify to some degree. But then what do you, where do those people go then? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's always where do they go? You know, Oregon Hill used to be much crazier than it is now. A lot of those people live out in Mechanicsville now, or you know, they live right. they, they they live in like weird sort of white trashy places and other right. outside of the town now, mm -hmm. you know, where their extended family lives. But not everybody has that house. What do you think? Of, I mean, you just said gentrification. I mean, what do you think of that whole concept? I just think it's a natural progression of human nature. I mean, you know, when a place started off with a heyday back in the day, you know, in the 30s and 40s, and then. You know, white flight takes place because of this and that and the other thing, busing and all those reasons of the six cars. And, and it became, you know, more black and less white. And the white people started their little colonies outside called short pump and things like that. Mm -hmm. and, you know, and then at some point, these, these cool as shit houses are still in existence. Mm -hmm. And people like the gays that no one really wants to be around needed to find their own turf. So they mm -hmm. came in and bought cheap housing, made it look nice put a couple of coffee shops and all of a sudden Joe and Molly chance taker who aren't gay, but like to think of themselves as rather progressive. Mm -hmm. They went ahead and moved into, and then, you know, gentrifies. And then all the people that used to live here can't afford the rents because they went up and then they got to go out to Mechanicsville on a trailer somewhere. Mm -hmm. It's just a bummer. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I don't natural. say, I don't think it's a thing that to get up in arms about or to actively prevent. I mean, it's, it's a result of it's just capitalism, you know. Absolutely. It's like in our, in our society, that's and I, I like it because hey, who doesn't like Adams Morgan now or Georgetown or you know what's happening to Scott's Edition, parts of Jackson Ward. I mean, people like that old Churchill. I mean, that old style architecture that is these days being more and more accessible to the upward mobile Caucasian. Yeah, I mean. My my parents moved in here. Like I was just saying, we walked in here. They bought, they were renting over here on the pilot block. You know, in Churchill, before the whole neighborhood was done, in like '68, '69, they had fixed up one block of it right across from Bellevue School. <laughs> That's a gutsy block. <laughs> yeah, and it was gay guys and old women. Right. You know, blue hairs and and um, it was like the midnight in the garden of good and evil kind of right. scene. And uh, and they formed the uh, you know historic Richmond Foundation and. And uh, started saying, okay, we can't let any more of these. Because the same thing that they did down there in the bottom, in Fulton Bottom, where they bulldozed that entire neighborhood. The plan was to do that up here at Churchill, too. And uh, they stopped it. So my parents were renting on that block. Then they bought a house over here in 1972. But they weren't gentrifiers. My dad worked at Philip Morris and factory, you know, middle management. And my mom wanted a house with a fireplace in every room. They wanted a place yeah. they could afford. <laughs> yeah, and it was like twenty thousand dollars to buy that house. You know, my dad yeah. I think was making seven now a year. Well, in those <laughs> days, seven to twelve, fourteen thousand dollars was real money before the you know they stopped backing the dollar with gold. Right. You know, and it became just paper. Yeah. Now everybody <laughs> makes eighty thousand dollars a year. It's like seven thousand dollars in real money. So don't get too excited. Yeah. <laughs> I always wondered how that all breaks down. But you mentioned before you came here. Is that your phone? That's or my phone. I'm back with it. Uh, where did you come from originally? Virginia Beach, Virginia. Yeah. Born and raised. First year that the hospital was open in Virginia Beach, I was born in it. That hospital doesn't exist anymore. They have a new house, hospital in its place. It's, uh, growing up there is weird. As a little kid, it was cool. My parents divorced. 
it's a long story and it's very complicated, but I'll keep it simple. Um, so me and my mom ended up in like 12 apartments in 12 years. I went to like you know, nine schools in Virginia Beach, a couple in California in 11th grade. You know, it was total insecurity, signatured childhood. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So you don't know anybody All the from your ear. You don't know anybody. Right. You, know? you become this class clown. You become this, how do you don't get your ass kicked? You know, mm -hmm. you'd be funny and you have a good hand for art to a degree. You know, mm -hmm. I was art, ended up here years later as an art student. But I mean, I always had that going for me. And a, and a quick line. But uh, you know, skinny buck tooth little shithead from another neighborhood. You know, let's let's kick his ass just be, just because. Look at him, fuck mm -hmm. him. You know, that's how it kind of was. You know, so uh, went to California for eleventh grade. Kind of got into punk rock and stuff out there because a couple of kids that I met in my suburban school. So when when took was me that? Downtown eleventh grade. That would be eighty two, eighty three. So was that the um the scene? Were you hitting that scene in sort of L A. where the I was in Sacramento. Oh, okay. Way up north. Which okay. was, I'm a no-cow guy. Mm. No, but I mean, I just handed up there, and these two cool dudes, Rick Windsor and uh, Chico Garcia, he was this white guy that called himself Chico, um, had this little Volkswagen, and they showed me about clove cigarettes and old English 800 quarts mm. and parties wow. at ramps downtown next to a record store. So there'd be a band playing in front of the record store and the ramp going on the side, and everybody's drinking Olden, like a Olden skate ramp? Yeah, skate mm -hmm. ramp. It was, everything had skate out there. It was all, there was punk rock, and that always meant skateboards, too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was never a big skater. I street skated a little bit, but I was just kind of in awe of this. I mean, I'm from Virginia Beach where there's no culture. There's no downtown. There's no yeah. – everything's new and just shitty, and it just sucks, and I fucking mm -hmm. hate that place. So anyway, it was like Paris out there to me, even though I hated being there because you're making me leave my hometown. You guys suck. You know? so I, I, I was rebelling against something that I liked, actually. Mm-hmm. So I ended up getting sent back after 11th grade. But out there, I got into a lot of cool shit. I, mean, I was seeing, I'm routinely seeing just, you know, TSOL, uh, the Dickies, um, the Vandals, Code of Honor, Sick Pleasure, Tales of Terror, all these, you know, California bands that just played at the ramps. Mm -hmm. I mean, it wasn't any big fucking The local band that was really cool was Tales for Terror. They were on uh, Not So Quiet as the Square Cools. And they had a song, I don't want to die for my country. Hell no. It's kind of like a misfitsy kind of ripoff. Mm -hmm. Walk Among Us came out when I was out there, and that was just the record that everybody worshipped. They all worshipped this exotic shit called Minor Threat from the East Coast. Uh -huh. To them, that was fucking China. And I guess, so anyway, I got into a lot of cool shit out there, as far as I was concerned. Came back for 12th grade. This whole new exotic punk rock guy from California, because mm -hmm. I moved around so much. I went to a school I used to, where kids I was going to school with I met eight years ago and haven't seen since. Mm -hmm. So it's always a strange. Hey, who are you? You keep coming back and forth. You came back with lives. the new hair and the. Oh yeah, they the all new had look. new hair too at this point. I mm -hmm. came back to the Virginia Beach. They all were like GBH and minor threat and bad brains and blowing my mind too. But I had a few in my back pocket from California. Yeah, the Cali. Really you had the neutron bomb. So like, I, I loved Cali. I still love California punk rock more than probably anything. But I like the DC scene. Got a little sickening with the whole Discord. You know, Fugazi bullshit as far after a minor threat, I really didn't give much of a fuck about Discord, really. But New York had a few bands, but it was always too tough guy up there for me. Well, like, like, yeah, some of it was. The, so the, I was going to ask you, like, the, the timeline for this, like, I, I kind of understand pretty well the timeline of the East Coast, you know, kind of starting around you know, Detroit and, and then Cleveland and then CBGBs and hey, the all of that. about hardcore. But, was it was all, it wasn't just the big cities. I mean, it was like Richmond. Yeah, it yeah. was Austin. It was, you know, you had the, uh, you know, MDC was from Texas somewhere. They had a gay singer. That was wild, you know. But so like I, 
I associate, I, I only know a little bit about like the California scene, you know, and here and there, like I, I worked for this label for a while that started in North, Northern California, like around the Gilman Street thing. And then it moved here for a while. And then we moved and I went with them to Southern California and we started it up in Huntington Beach and a totally different scene down there. And I read that book, We Got the Neutron Bomb. I you know, read this book. It's about basically the, you know, the West Coast. It's the West Coast version of Please Kill Me. Have you I, ever I read Please it. Kill Me? I have yeah. a, a, a Legs McNeil signed copy that says to Merrick, treat or, yeah, make sure he treats you, uh, teaches you right. Yeah. Because he, he actually spoke on his birthday yeah. at Bandito's a couple of years ago, and that was just huge for me because I'd always loved that book. So the, what I remember from that book, from the We Got the Neutron Bomb, which was the West Coast Please kill me. Absolutely. I'm there was this scene in, I don't know what, what part of California it was, maybe LA, that the Stray Cats and those bands came out of that they were playing cats in Mall Long Island. Okay, maybe it wasn't Stray Cats. It was somebody like them. The Blasters, X, the Cramps, Gun Club. These were early Southern California called Dickies, DI. Um, and it all, and it all oh, had that band that was like Levi or. Levi and the Rockettes? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. that was a, a, that was a Southern California. I'm not sure where they were from. Were they they might have been from Southern California. And obviously, I got this mixed up. But like you, was that were you into that stuff as well? Is that well, when you're in Sacramento, LA is yours too. I mean, yeah, that's yeah. There, you're seeing these bands very regularly. Let's go. It's you know, the distance from New York to Richmond. It is, but yeah. you go, you just do the whole California thing. Maybe right. you go up to Washington, or and maybe you'll you know go down to Phoenix because you know you had like the JFAs and stuff from down in the in the desert. Mm -hmm. And. Uh, Maybe you might go to, I don't know, Nevada for some reason, but it was all, it was very coastal, you know. I mean, I loved a lot of LA bands. Um, the Germs was before my time. They're mm -hmm. the American Sex Pistols, kind of, as far as mm -hmm. I'm concerned. Mean a lot to me, but I was, you know, they were, he was dead in 79. I got into shit three years later. Mm -hmm. I'm the second, I'm a hardcore the kid. Derby I mean, I, I love punk rock. When I say New York's tough guy stuff, not the 70s New York, that Please Kill Me stuff's great. Yeah. So interesting to read about. But in the 80s, it, it got kind of, to me, just kind of too street punk hard. Uh -huh. I don't know. It just was too tough guy. There's yeah, a couple yeah. of the CFA cause for alarm. I liked a lot. I liked a few. Reagan Youth was good for a little while. But I mean, some of those bands were just, just mean. You know, just you come down to Rockets and go, well, from Brooklyn, it wasn't your fucking voice. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that, that's, and Lester Bangs, he's, a, you know, was talking about that then and was like, where, where'd all these muscle heads come from? And he was well, talking about minor that. threat in well, those guys. And that's why how they came up with the flex your head thing. Like, his, we got, yeah, uh, we got interesting. But, but yeah. I, I, I get where he's coming from because he's from the way old school. And, and to not know Minor Threat, you probably think there's some skinhead idiot singing. But, you know, of course, right. it wasn't anything like that. It was the, the Milk and Cookies guys. Right. Loved their energy. No, five bands. There's, there's, there's room in one hand for the bands that I'll never, will always be timelessly. Something I can listen to from the mm -hmm. hardcore days. And Minor Threat's definitely one of them. Mm -hmm. Bad brains. Yeah, you know, at the point that all of that was happening in Richmond, I'm, I mean, I'm just like a little bit younger than you, so I was aware what was going on, but I didn't want any part of it because I thought it was all tough guy, right? <laughs> You're and, huge, though. You could have beat them all hey, up. Hey, man, but I grew up in this neighborhood where tough guy shit was not funny to me. It meant like it, like I got my ass kicked and, and hassled and bullied all the time. I didn't want any part of that. And I feel like the people from the suburbs, you haven't had to live in that. Right. You think it's so romantic to be tough. But like, <laughs> you know, I had to defend myself just for going to the local pool or going down to the park. I didn't want any part of, you know, tough guy shit. And I guess I, I was a pussy. You. I was a lover, not a fighter. I just, I wanted to be around the art kids. Me too. You know? I, had so, no, I was never a fighter. No one ever yeah. thought, watch out, McClan's coming. He's a hothead. <laughs> it wasn't like that. Not in my case, but I just, I was always kind of close to things. Like I knew a lot of 
hard drug users. I know a lot of great skaters. I know a lot of great musicians. And I was always just kind of around really close to it mm -hmm. until I just got kind of this opportunity to – I was playing drums when I first moved here with Rock Copland and Scotty Price and Dano and – we had this band called Suicide Kings. I'm, I'm a very average drummer at best. They weren't going to be anything good with me as the drummer. And it was a weird mix of people anyway. But um, I finally grabbed the mic with and got Scotty Price and Clinton Carpenter. We went over to the Norfolk house, set up a couple amps, and did two songs. I said, I want to sing. Okay. What are you going to sing out of this guitar amp? Okay. Well, let's try. Two songs, All My Friends Who Died and Little Sister from Elvis. I mean, that was the first practice. And it was kind of fun, and we got a couple of guys in. Next thing you know, 28 years later, Chrome Daddy Disco is playing on the 27th of August with Agent Orange. Still at it. It's just so funny how it happened. I'm such a non-musician. I, I can't play anything, really. I'm just, I get it, freaks out on the stage and gets away with it. And to be able to do it with good musicians behind me for all these years is truly one of the most... They always need a personality to get out in front, man, because usually the guys can play don't have much. True. I like a band that has a, a little <laughs> something to give me, like a joke. I like a little humor in my rock and roll. That's why I like the Dickies and the Cramps so much. And, you know, this bands that just, they're, they're larger than life. They're something you can't necessarily be yourself. Yeah. yeah. So I what like did Crone Daddy Disco base their thing on was the it cramps the cramps it wasn't going back to the 50s <laughs> hell no no it was straight up like we I, I love like eddie yeah. i love you know gene i'm very familiar with historic rockabilly johnny burnett trio was the geniuses to me i'm a novice guy I like the next guy but come on i mean he was his package keep right. deal but i mean i love rockabilly mm -hmm. but to play rockabilly straight i can't stand when i see bands play straight blues or straight rockabilly especially if they're white mm -hmm. the blues part mm -hmm. uh blues hammer i always say from that you know ghost world movie <laughs> that? blues hammer i was like oh thank you for making that dig at those assholes <laughs> but uh, it bores the shit out of me I, I like to infuse some other influences in there some punk rock i want to see that you know who the fall is i want to see that you know who the cramps are the gun club the blasters x and the misfits and some West Coast rockabilly freaks from latter years like Ray Kondo. And, you know, just, I, I like to see the influences in bands. So if you're just going up there being, you know, hub, hubcaps and soda pop and a bowling yeah. shirt, you know, that's really cute. Um, I'll be there about 10 minutes. Yeah, anytime it gets into a straight, like, regimented uniform thing, it's, it's off the rack. bullshit, you know? Well, there's these oh, bands these days are getting a lot of steam, and some of them are really good, but they're garage bands. Oh, and they yeah. all sound like the perfect example of 60s rock and roll. But not like, you know, raunchy garage rock and roll. And that's great. I mean, I love that kind of music, but when I see it live today, it, I, I'm good for 15 minutes. It's like a surf band. I love surf music, but if you can sit there and play it 60s style for me, it's going to get old quick. So you and I are old enough to have seen this shit come and go We've seen a, a bunch of times. Goes, so yes. there's the original 50s and the, the 80s 50s. And then there's the... The Horton Heat 50s and the early 90s. And the early 90s 50s. And like the garage bands, then the Gories and the Demolition Doll Rods, and, uh, which is actually after the Gories. And or the, uh, the Pittsburgh band that was really cool. The uh, We played with them once. Anyway, there was, there, was, there was some pretty serious bands doing that genre at the time. So Touring. that's the thing about being old in rock and roll, though, is like, you know, that shit really is for kids that don't know any better. It is. Right? So it's, it's, for like, the it's new for me. You know, sure. And like, it sucks when you you become this kind of an archivist, or or you just you know. You think eyes didn't roll when I rolled into town? I mean, Gail McGee and all these guys who are close with the friends with me now were like, "Fuck this little asshole, this little yeah. dice clay rockabilly <laughs> fucking jerk off 
fuck this guy. Oh, he walks into a place, acts like an asshole, and gets pussy. Okay, wait, wait, so how does it fuck him, man? How can mm-hmm. he walk in and say, yo, bitch, what's going on tonight? And he leaves with her. How can this be? You know, <laughs> it, was, it was infuriating to people. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's all about her. Timing. Yeah. Timing. Right. Wait, what is that? Uh, that's humor. That, so. that was from Steve Martin. Yeah, <laughs> but, uh, I, I, just, I loved this. I loved the old school. I respected it. I mean, Chris B and I, Dodger and I are still very close friends to this day. But it took some. You had to win these people over. Yeah. Because yeah. you walk in and you're going to be this new thing that's part of the musical landscape. You know, you got to earn your stripes, and I can dig it, man. I, nothing bugs me more than the band that thinks they can straddle the respect of what happened before them. I think mm-hmm. that's important. Know your yeah, I, I go back and forth it because I, I didn't really, I didn't know how what is no, now packaged and known as punk rock came to be until I read like a few because I really wasn't into it. I was much more into like metal and and rock and and right. even rap and hip hop than mm-hmm. I was punk. But I you know I ended up reading a couple of books in New York like in the nineties, and it seemed like all of these guys were always just like doing their own thing and nobody fucking liked it when they were doing it you know right they like they just came up with this weird you know cross-section of stuff and they were just really their authentic self and that's the thing is like i think punk rock is supposed to be really what it was is i agree the total outcast doing their own thing that's the true know. definition of it. the right. stranglers they're just 30 year old guys look like a bunch of you know 70s music you know studio cats and uh i think the stranglers are one of the greatest bands of all time they were they were in, in embraced by the punk rock scene anybody who liked the clash the damned and the pistols they, they always you know mm-hmm. the, the stranglers were cool too even though they weren't even giving a shit about that scene the right. Stranglers were just this weird rock band with a weird organ right and a dark kind of imagery about them mm-hmm. um and I, so like they're punks to me the mm-hmm. stranglers they never said we're punks but i do you know, yeah who knows would. and that shit was came was come up with by a goddamn writer anyway you know was it like uh who was it did originally it was the dude that wrote bomb Magazine or magazine who what, coined? What, oh no, no, Legs that? McPunk. Like oh, punk, calling yeah, it, well, Punk is coming. Were posters, uh, posters right. that were all over the place, and it was just this or skinny Legs little McNeil. guy and his friend called Punk Magazine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Legs McNeil also in New York. Those Stranglers are uh, in, in Europe. Right, right. But and, I mean, uh, so you know, they were calling aware. anything Punk was was the work of an archivist or yeah. or a fucking not what do you call it a curator? He just coined a phrase that yeah. worked for a new sound that was very varied sound actually, kind of like. Uh, Alan Freed got the coin rock and roll. Right. I mean, you know, same kind of thing. Mm-hmm. To be to be alive and know that you're the Alan Freed of punk rock, there's something pretty. He's making a living off of that. Mm-hmm. You know, he's got his – I'm a big supporter of him. I mean, you know, he's just this guy who's in his 60s now with this cute young girlfriend. He gets to tour around, reading from his book, getting paid. I mean, it's pretty cool. I met him um, in New York in uh, in like 94. Five and like I so this is the way it works. If you, if I had been this punk rock kid who really went to New York to be a part of that, I never would have met any of these people. But I went there to because I wanted I had pretensions of being you know a writer like a you know a Beat or a Henry Miller or something sure. like that. And I ended up moving into the East Village with these guys. And one of my friends, Dave Aaron, was a skater and a painter. And Arturo Vega was always buying his paintings. Oh, wow. So he takes me over to his house and like CJ. Is asleep on the couch and legs is there, and I have no clue who these people are. Oh, could you? You know, and 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 Arturo's like, well, Curtis, you're a writer. I'd like to meet my writer friend here, Legs. You know, he uh, he coined the term punk, and I'm like, I am not really that into 
punk. <laughs> you <laughs> would have been a little bit more in awe had you had a little more information in your belt at the time. <laughs> yeah, Arturo, wouldn't that have been, I mean, But I wouldn't have met him if I'd had all that information. I would have run him off. They don't want to be around these fucking want, you know, fanboys. They want to, sure. you know. They like to be amongst them, each other. I mean, the Ramones lived at Arturo Vegas right. most of the time. That is history right there. I, yeah. I didn't even know who Arturo Vega was until I read Please Kill Me. I mean, yeah. he wasn't a name you heard all the time. No. But I like knowing about him. I like mm-hmm. how that book especially lets you it's like really just being a fly on the wall in places you never would have known about had you not read that book yeah it's a lot to me so that's, that's why i had him sign it because i was like on the one hand it's book. really cool to go to look at that and say um you know to get into the the anthropology or the archaeology or, or like whatever of it but also to go oh those jokers are just like any other jokers absolutely and like you don't have to just worship them you can fucking do it's it all D-I-Y, also you know? or dyi i guess D-I- say. They, that's yourself. how they yeah, were yeah, yeah, and that's yeah. what you need to be this, this, like, hey, this, this off off the right punk scenes like, there's like a whole 90s slew of bands that were doing like power pop punk Mm-hmm. Like the Dickies, like the Ramones, you can might say that you know Guttermouth kind of was early on that, but there's just so many. It sounded the same. They're all the, you know, Green Day. They're all the, to me, they're all the same fucking shit. Mm-hmm. And it's all just off the blood, sweat, and poverty of the bands that started it and are these days playing Banditos mm-hmm. for a thousand bucks. And I thank God that they're out there. But yeah, I, they're there, and I treat them like kings because God damn it, these other guys are rich. It's really right. annoying. Guttermouth is playing, by the way, this month. Do you think there's anything actually about Green Day that, I mean, you know, when they came out around the Dookie time, I remember reading this article in Rolling Stone. It wasn't even an article. It was like a letter to the editor. And somebody was like, in five years, Green Day is going to be the day you take your, everybody takes your recycling to the curb, you know, and that turns out not to be true. I mean, those guys really had some staying power. I mean, they did look like a packaged punk rock thing there, but it must be. Somewhat good I think they were a little more real yeah. than that. They weren't really yeah. packaged. I think they're just some rich potheads that hung around Berkeley, mm-hmm. screwing cute chicks in college that right. got a nice launch from some inside connection somewhere. I know that for sure, at least mm-hmm. that much. And they were cute and good and what the fuck ever. But I just, I, you know, I was, a, I was to me, punk hardcore was over in '86 when the Misfits and Coc and these other bands and Dri just said they were metal bands all of a yeah. sudden. I hated metal. I was the metal was the the enemy of music always in my life. Mm-hmm. Hated Kiss. Even like Mar- no Aerosmith. kind of metal. Fuck no. Nothing. Well, Motor. I did see Motorhead tripping balls once in '84, and that was a moving experience. That was generally accepted by the punks. It was. They're like blasters, or really a rockabilly band that punks love. Right. Motorhead. You know, they have a close relationship with the Damned, and just a very much a, who doesn't like Motorhead? I mean, I like Metallica's first two records, the first one the most, because it was so poorly produced and just mm-hmm. rough. You know, Kill 'Em All was great. Yeah, Ride the Lightning was okay. Everything else after that was just rock star shit to me. I just, mm-hmm. you know, Dave Brocky was a close friend of mine. He knows I could never stand this band that much. I'm not mm-hmm. gonna watch Guar. I'm not gonna, mm-hmm. I might watch mm-hmm. Guar. I'm not gonna listen to Guar on my radio. I'm on my stereo. You know what I mean? But he didn't. He understood that. And he didn't care. He wasn't. He didn't either. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was just as bigger than life person. Well, and he also had that attitude that you do that it's all got to have some kind of joke, gimmick, humor. He's the king of it. Kind of, you know. Yeah. The fool. I learned a yeah. lot from him. I mean, I really—he inspired the shit. I mean, he was one of the, the early people saying, "You can do this. You can do this." And actually, Gail McGee—I mentioned his name because he became one of those guys too after the initial "fuck this little asshole." <laughs> but I don't blame him for because I was a cucky little shit for no good reason other than pure insecurity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I had to get pounded into shape. Thank you for Richmond for doing that. I feel like I'm from Richmond. I've been here more than half my life, and I had to be a very poorly unfinished product leaving Virginia Beach. And how did you fresh off? Did you come here to go to VCU or did you yeah? Because I was there for my 
I don't know, 17 to 19, I lived nowhere in Virginia Beach. I, I sleep on, on lawn chairs next to pools underneath this Wendy's. A couch here and there. There's a few punk rock houses you could crash in. Maybe three of us worked for a week to buy a bag of weed and had enough left over for a $60 motel room for a week mm -hmm. and the shittiest little thing, you know, waiting mm -hmm. for the guy that works at Golden Skillet to come with a big bag of unused greasy chicken. <laughs> the thing we ate that day if we're not stealing 7-Eleven burritos down our pants. <laughs> I mean, that was a couple of good years. And they were not good years, but they were it was two years. And then I got busted because I helped a guy get cocaine, and, but I didn't sell it or anything. And I just because it changed my hands, uh -huh. I, I got a, a felony distribution, the distribution of mm -hmm. controlled substance. I faced five to forty. Wow! A year of court dates. Started going to TCC to look like I cared about life a little bit, you know. Moved, had a girlfriend, and you know, just sort of did things sort of for the first time. Kept the same job with the Jewish mother for a year. And uh, when the court case finally came up, the judge was like, "McLean, I got no." Sympathy for you and the bullshit, whatever. Blah, blah. But I known your dad twenty or twenty-eight years. He's worked for the city. He's sitting in the audience over there. I give you a choice: you can go to VCU. It looks like you've been accepted to VCU art school, or you can go to prison. I suggest you, you know, any, any, wow. whatever. It's like, uh, yes, sir. I understand, sir. Don't let me sketch in my courtroom again. This is back when there wasn't this <laughs> complex of Virginia Beach courtrooms. It was just one goddamn big brick, just just gothic thing on the hill. I ran out of that thing, kissed the grass, and got the fuck out of town. Came to Richmond. Uh, a week before my 20th birthday, moved into Park Avenue, and I was in total culture shock because, I mean, I've been to shows here, but, I mean, every kid has an apartment in this little cool neighborhood with a bunch of little bars, and they can party all night, and no one can fucks with them. Mm -hmm. At the beach, anybody has a party. It's over at 10, and some people are going to jail. Yeah. You get – the cops in the Virginia Beach are fucking brutal, man. Yeah, yeah. They pull you over because you have an earring just to call you a faggot. <laughs> I mean, I got pulled off a moped just to be told that I was a faggot. And then they gave me a ticket for not having eyewear. I mean, it's no one had eyewear. You just you're mm -hmm. on a moped and go from your house to work at the Jumo. Mm -hmm. Oh, you work at the Jumo. I hear all only faggots work there. <laughs> well, they call oh, me the God, breeder. So I'm the only straight guy there actually, but they're really nice people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they just want to. They just, they just want you to. They just want to punch you in the face. I mean, yeah. it, it sucks. Mm -hmm. Here, the cops are just dudes. Sorry, That's dudes that you meet. I know cops from back then in the Gray Street days that I still know today. Zoheb's a captain now, and we're. Not, we don't play poker, but he's a guy I can call for advice anytime. He's a good friend. Mm -hmm. He's been around 30 years. The cops here, I'm not saying there's not any dicks, but it's night and day. Overall, they are not really. And I mean, I've gotten out of so much shit, and it ain't because, you know, like I'm white. It's because the fucking cops are nice. Like, they really, like, if they sum up the situation. Yeah. They go, is this really worth it? You know, right. and if, like, the kids being basically being respectful and apologizing or whatever right. the hell. Then like they don't want, you know, they don't want any trouble. <laughs> yeah, and that was a great thing about Richmond in that time is nobody gave a shit what was going on from Churchill to the Boulevard or beyond. Like you could just, like you said, you could do whatever you wanted to, right? Nobody was really. It was the Wild West up it. until about 15 years ago, I'd say. 80s and 90s were the end of that. But uh, I mean, I'm glad I got here in time to enjoy the old village, mm -hmm. to be a real regular at Marvin's, to have worked yeah. at Rockets, to have seen. Some very formative shows Did you in, at Rockets. Work at Marvin's. I worked too? at Rockets actually you worked for at Rockets. a couple of years, and then it was a Metro. I worked there for a year, and uh, then I ended up just sort of working in That's restaurants here and there. I remember encountering you, and I remember I was friends with Bay, and I feel like you know you guys were friends. Somewhere. Day Bay Devolution, you remember him? He would have these warehouse parties where ODC is now, and like charge five bucks to get in and have kegs. And I, that's so vaguely familiar to me. It's kind of it's a hustler, a long time. you know, like he hey. was also, he was from Williamsburg. Huh. Um, 
something. I don't remember. I bet if I, I saw a picture, I'd go, oh, my God. The, the name escapes little dude, me. dude, like, you know, he was – he hung out with – um. well, when he first name. came to town, he just kind of hung – he was just around. You know, you just pop mm-hmm. up different places. And he was always running little hustle scams with pizza joints and, and food. You know, like, he, he could get anything delivered for free. He would just call him <laughs> up and tell him that um, they hustler. owed him. Yeah, but, yeah, I remember him and you talking someplace, like, meeting you at, like <sighs> – Marvin's or Derby's or sure. one of those places. Could easily have been, man. It was a Story few shots of whiskey ago. <laughs> so how did you get into being in fucking restaurant business? You got to know how to suck cock. And I mean yeah. suck it good. Yeah. I make this Who's mouth cock? feel like a tight little <laughs> pussy. And men appreciate it. <laughs> not a gay man, but not made of stone. I know where I'm trying to get and where I'm trying to go. So was that the city officials you had? Who's yeah, everybody. The ABC hey, this is where I did for a while. I was just like, hey, I was like a big blur decade. <laughs> no, um, I always worked as a cook. That's because in Virginia Beach, you bang nails, you flip burgers. Mm-hmm. You start off washing fucking dishes. You'd have a million shitty jobs. Until you one or two kind of click in. The Raven, okay, for about a year. It wasn't a great restaurant. It was, a, it was an established place down there. About a year, year and a half there. About a year, year and a half Jewish mother. And then all the problems happened for me. With the uh, law, which was stupid, because I really was just a poor kid. Just uh, this guy right. next door and begged for me to uh, make a call, and he was he was setting me up somebody. because he was in trouble. Right. So the cop was the other guy that was helping. He was helping this cop set me. I'm, just, I'm the next door neighbor, I'm just some scrawny ass, black haired, nineteen year old fucking baby. You know, mm-hmm. I didn't have shit from Shinola. Mm-hmm. And uh, they shit all over me. It was right at the well, time was the where 80s. it was you just say no, and, and yeah, and then the. DA or was just, was just like, you make an example of this piece of shit. All your shit. It was, there was an yeah. eight ball. I helped the guy sell. I didn't get anything out of it. I mean, maybe he did a lot. I didn't do coke. I don't know. I've never been a drug addict. I mean, I like, mm-hmm. I've enjoyed weed. I drink. But I've never been like a hard drug user. I have too many dead friends. Yep. That's a whole lot of stuff we could get into there. I know. You probably know the cat pretty well from the old days, old lair. Yeah. Yeah, we became we knew each other for twenty years, but we we get more close lately because he was real regular at the bar. So mm-hmm. that's why it's so particularly stinger for me. I mean, you know, you saw him every day. You know, you get used to somebody when you see him that often. Yeah, and I, I like you know brother. he is. I, I, he and I were never close friends, but we hung out a lot of different times sure. and partied together. And when he worked at um a place on Robinson, I can't remember what it was when Micah owned it. Um. Uh, fuck, I can't remember what it's called, but he, you know, the like right where the might even be Bracine? where Bracine, yeah. Uh, one night he and I were getting drunk in there after they closed the place, and uh, and we went out to get in my truck and go someplace and do something, and we walked around for like he told me that story once. <laughs> he did for my truck. <laughs> That's <the> story <laughs> and like the and I don't know what we ended up, but the next day we came back and the truck was parked in front of the fucking restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> No, he said that story not this 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 year, and it was uh, I think I was telling him I was going to come here and do this one of those mm-hmm. times many times where we didn't actually get it done. It was oh yeah, I got a funny story about. It. I mean it was it was he said it in in, in jest and in in, in in not in a negative way. Oh yeah, and yeah. you know we in a friendly way. Yeah, and um and we he's we talked about that before, and like he he and I got together a few different times to be bad, you know, like sure. after and and yet he would be done before me. You know, and like, so I, you know, I went off and got that shit out of my system and I stopped doing all of that. And every time I would see pictures of him on, on Facebook and he's, he's looking pretty rough, like in some of them. And yeah. I would just make a little wry comment down there and like, and really just trying to encourage you. you I know? never did choice them because you know, I didn't, he, I was the guy who was just a little few years older and like 
little older than him, always really coming down on him for, you know, fucking around with heroin. That, yeah. that shit really – there was a time. He had to work for a couple of years. Not to sound like he worshipped me or anything, but to get back in my good graces, it yeah. mattered to him. And yeah. he did do that work, and he did get back in my good graces. For the last five years, we became pretty close. We didn't go yeah. – he was just at the restaurant all the time, so that's where we always were. We didn't go other places together right. until – Right before he died, we went to Virginia Beach on a road trip with me, him, and Crispy, and some other guy named Alan. He's just some other guy. I don't even know Alan. But we all went down there and just had What's this. What's Alan's last name? Um, Alan. God, he's become a, a recent friend of mine through Larry, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, Baldwin. Alan Baldwin. Oh, I don't, yeah, I don't know him. He knows some of these, like, Sean Harris and you yeah, know, yeah. Uh, Larry guys from way back in the day. I think he moved away for a bunch of years and came back. One of those type of cats. Um, but anyway, I uh, had this magical little trip down there. Well, I hate Virginia Beach. You're trying to get there, the traffic alone ruins your life. Mm -hmm. But you finally mm -hmm. get down there. A couple of buddies, Clinton Carpenter, a couple other folks were down there. Took us down to this weird place, this wildly packed Atlantic Avenue. It's very mm -hmm. ghetto-y and weird, and it's not mm -hmm. where I grew up at all, you know? Yeah. And uh, this big club right there on Atlantic What's it Avenue, called? GBH. It was called um, Shaka's Live. Oh. I played a bunch of places down there when I was in the Devil Tones. This is a weird little Virginia Beach scene. It, it yeah. changes by decade. It, it's mm -hmm. very different now than it was 10 years ago or 10 years before that. But this mm -hmm. place was a big, nice place, I guess. But GBH playing at the beach. We, used to have, we have to go to D.C. or Richmond mm -hmm. to see GBH back in the day. So it was kind of ironic. Anyway, we had a blast of a time. Got totally shit-faced. Uh, rode back, pounding Slurpees and, you know, hangover breakfast, you know. And had a really just joke the whole time. Got back to Banditos, which we call headquarters. And we just sat there and just did a bunch of shots and had a few beers. All right, about 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock on Sunday. I'm getting a couple of slices from Mary Angela's. I'm going to go crash. I need to die right now. I need to go mm -hmm. just pass out. I'll see you guys. Y'all do the same now. Okay, we'll see you later. Next morning, the next day, I got a call from – they're calling Bandito, seeing if Larry's here because he was a no-call, no-show at Panera. He's never a call, no-call, no-show. Right then. And I thought he hadn't been doing it in years. Right then it all just went – he fucked up. Did heroin died last night? I said, and I was with my kid at, at a pool. I was like, Alan, get over there right now. And he mm -hmm. got, you know, banging on the door. No one's answering. Ah, oh, shit. Call his brother over to knock out a window. There he was. Dead as doornail. So, so anyway. You found him? I, 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 the guys that found them got the call from me, and I got the call from Panera, basically. It sucks. Yeah, it was so. And it was Chilling. just one of those things, just like what happened with Dave, pretty much. Like, you just, just were drunk one night and said, fuck it. And, you know, and I've done drunk. it many times. I just times, want to just have just one a, more push on this. I right. Good time. Let's get one more good buzz in. It wasn't yeah. neither one of those guys were even considering telling the fucking Russian roulette, you know? I had a so. very long and unusually long and, and personal conversation with Dave about a month before he died. I had pictures of it on my Facebook before. He's like about to pass out. His girlfriend's passed out in his lap. We're talking about every goddamn thing in the world. He's wanting to get out of Guar. Not not like fuck Guar, but I'm 50. I want to do something else. Yeah. I, you know, and I mean, we're talking about all these real ideas, funny ideas, just a lot of joking. It's real Dave time, like mm -hmm. hours of it that night. I had to like get him into a cabbie, bash his nose, blood everywhere. I mean, it was a really memorable fucked up night for us. Mm -hmm. And uh, Lee Ving called him while we we're sitting at that table in Banditos that night. The first time he'd ever spoken to Lee Ving. He was like this kid going in awe, you know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, man. I mean, because they were calling about something business-wise that had to do with bands or something like that. But he was just so like a little boy talking, leaving for the first time in mm -hmm. this long, drunken conversation, and then he's gone. Poof, a month mm -hmm. later. I was closer to Larry on a day-to-day -day basis, but I mean, you know, Dave meant a lot to all of us, you know, in some way or another. Yeah, man. I mean, he was there's so much that he was. I mean, like, fuck. I mean, the, 
you know, being like somebody who showed like this is how you can do it if you just want to do your own fucking thing, you know, and so be supportive. funny about it, and yeah, and and always supportive, yeah, always like. He sat down and he'd be a dick on purpose for fun, but he was never right. truly mean to anybody. He no. always let you know you cared. He cared about you. So yeah, really, actually, yeah. a very positive fucking guy, fucking you know. Man. And um, and all of that stuff. Yeah, I didn't pay much attention to Guar until like 1991, Scum Dogs the Universe or something. Right. And then um, I actually really liked that record, like musically. And <laughs> of course, like I heard metal. <laughs> you like the kind of music that's I like that down that shit, line, right? And then I went to see him, and I was like, oh, what? This is all the crap that. What they're doing on stage, it's a little pro wrestling, it's a little performance art, it's a little political. You know, yeah, there's a Kinda lot of fairish. statements, a lot of satire, you know, the kind of Tammy shit that Faye means a little. Jim Baker. Yeah. Hilarious stuff. Yeah, a lot of English major here, you know, like reading all about satire. I got people doing it like oh. on stage. I mean, you had, very, to re- you had to respect you know, it back in the day. I mean, it yeah. wasn't just some metal band back then, it was an art project. In the 80s, when I was working at Rockets, those shows were primitive, but eons beyond anything anybody had done around here before so it was mm-hmm. a quite a every show was a fucking shit scene you know mm-hmm. we had to like put barriers up and a bunch of extra people working and just making sure we picked up the bottles and you can't do this and you can't do that you know it was mm-hmm. weird but it was a fucking thing going on in that room yeah butthole surfers would play psychic tv would play uh you know these swans would play i mean these, these were like these great yeah. shows and at the time you know but ours was guar and guar mm-hmm. to us at the, to me at the time was every bit of all that Mm-hmm. I didn't think of him as metal back then. Yeah. I thought of him as topical, humorous, punk rock. I thought of him as intellectual. I mean, mm-hmm. it didn't seem mm-hmm. at all. It really was. Yeah, I mean, and was. Yet, walking that fine line between, as Nigel Tufnell says in Spinal Tap, stupid and clever. You know. And I love <laughs> smart dumb. There's a yeah. thing called smart yeah. dumb that's very important. Know how to do it or you look dumb. Well, yeah, you, you, <laughs> totally. And and I think the thing that, that's under it, and you, you mentioned insecurity a little while ago, is, I mean, you you can't take yourself too seriously, or that's you make more of a clown out of yourself than if you're intentionally trying to be a clown. And <laughs> it's hard not to laugh at the guy who can't laugh at himself. I yeah. mean, please. Mm-hmm. And I, I had to become that too. I mean, I, I was a funny guy, but I was not funny about myself when I was younger. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. I was just had guard up, up man. I was yeah. just. Yeah, yeah. Just, I had my guard up to the point where I didn't realize it was up. I was just a hard-shelled, I was a hard-boiled kid, man. I came mm-hmm. from the street, see? I mean, I was a, wasn't a suburban kid. We were poor. I grew up very poor, separated parents that didn't like each other, just talked to me. Just poor on both ends. Mm-hmm. And just once high school, and I was 17, it was just... No money, no I, love. No, no, nothing. I mean, mm-hmm. I didn't know how to use a bank. Mm-hmm. I, didn't know, I didn't have a car until I was 27 years old. Wow. I mean, I, I just walked around and hitchhiked to dc and new york and richmond and all the time and just stayed places until i wore out my welcome and went to the next place and got <laughs> turned into a scourge there you know what mm-hmm. I, it was really a mm-hmm. I, I kind of enjoyed and embraced being at the fucking bottom i was all into bukowski and all that good shit mm-hmm. of course mm-hmm. you know and he and my lifestyle jived with his model, which was important to me for seeing how yeah, yeah, yeah. stupid as That's shit. That's why most people are attracted to Bukowski. Of course. I had some young guys <laughs> that were like 23 when I was 17 that were like total fuck-up losers that – I shouldn't say total fuck-up losers. They, they were the drunks that weren't going to be doing anything with their lives, but they were mm-hmm. very charismatic, mm-hmm. victimized. And Norfolk was one, a guy like that for me. Have you ever heard of victimized? He's still around. He's like the mayor of the scene now in you mm-hmm. know, Norfolk. And this guy, John Denny, who moved to D.C. and he's been there for 30 years now, they were just these – Bukowski-esque sort of characters that mm-hmm. I just sort of was sort of romanticized by. I wouldn't do the heroin and, and the, mm-hmm. the drugs they were doing. I just pretty much drank and did a, the occasional painkiller. But uh, I liked that I did, went to jail here and there for stupid little shit or uh, didn't live anywhere. Bum change in D.C. Stayed in a factory or a cave mm-hmm. or a squat. 
you know, that I, I really, because I, you can only go up from here. And mm -hmm. I always knew, even back then, one day when you're old, you know, 30, you're going to be fine. It's not going to straighten out for you. Mm -hmm. You're going to do whatever you want and, and you watch all these people die. I, dying like fucking left and right back then. Mm -hmm. Heroin and suicide and just uh, knowing you're going to be okay with no fucking reason in the world to believe that for one goddamn second. If it was my son, he'd be getting slapped all over the fucking place for trying to live like uh -huh. I was living. But no one gave a fuck. No one was doing that to me. So, um, but anyway. That's interesting. I mean, you know, I, I did come out of it, though. You came out of a, a situation where it's totally the formula for that. I didn't. My parents were tight. They loved me. They tried to do everything for me. And I grew in Churchill, grew up in Churchill, so I had a lot of other examples around me. And I didn't want to listen to my parents. I wanted to do what the cool well, You were a much more well-adjusted, what I would call normal kid than me, though. I mean, I, I never thought of you as some fucked-up guy. You drank a little much for a while there. That's the worst you can say about you. But a lot of people have drinking problems. Well, no I, think, from. I, I think that, that my version of destructiveness was, like, that insecurity and that seriousness, you know, coupled with, like, you know... Um, this uh, <laughs> conceit and egotism on the flip side of it and like over you know pissing off people and 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 hurting people's feelings and fucking with people shit, you know also the accessibility and, to drugs and alcohol in Richmond was pretty fucking easy i mean mm -hmm. you can really hurt yourself here without trying what hard and it's gotten things. a lot easier too and i mean i feel like you know we go back to this like people like really great people and like you know i never was close friends with either larry or uh Brocky. Brocky, but I was close enough. I've had many conversations sure, you know. and I, whatever. And, you know, when those, I, I feel like we miss an opportunity sometimes when those guys, when something like that happens to those guys to say, look, this is not a fucking joke. This shit that we, that people play around with and they romanticize and they say it's, it's Burroughs, it's Bukowski, it's Keith Richards. No, it's fucking like seriously spinning the, the barrel and putting the gun up to your head, you know? About and like Keith I don't Richards, mean to be preaching, say, but goddamn, no, right. you know, right. I had to get out there. I, I had to actually stop my life completely and go to rehab, you know, and mm -hmm. like, and see that was big. Fucking tons of people's lives like completely fucking ruined. Like even if they don't end up dead, they end up fucked, you know. And um, it's not really all that funny to me no, anymore. I hear it's you. No, like I don't find cute, any of this funny. There, that's why I don't do the things they did to yeah. kill themselves ultimately. But I mean, you know, they have this. Once you get hooked into it, you're, it's like cigarettes in me. I, I'd love to not have anything to do with that crap. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I never really wanted to be in it. You get in it for all the wrong reasons, and you're stuck mm -hmm. in it. And it's, you know what they say, that every cigarette you smoke, you lose a year of your life. And yeah. you give it to Keith Caught Richards. Nails. Right. <laughs> I heard that somewhere. It was so funny as shit. I'd like to share that. Yeah, well, there's always that person like Keith Richards who just d really defies the odds. I mean, that guy's been changing. He's an inspiration. Yeah. <laughs> wrong shit. I don't. Uh, but, but seriously, I'm interested because, you know, in this point in my life, although we are in my little jam room, this is not getting much work here. I spend all this time on corporate shit these days trying to make money. And and I have to keep pep talking myself that that's creative work, too, to try to, like, you know, support some business, you know, and, like, to help people, other people make their living. You know, you got to make a fucking living. So you've been doing that for since, like – what the 90s the first banditos was banditos was we opened it in um, march of 97 ad so i'm interested in this and this i don't think this is a, a uh, an, another um current from punk rock and all the other shit you did like how did you what how did you start how to go yeah. okay yeah, well tell me what story. happened was we were doing this chrome daddy stuff and then teenage crime lords and chrome daddy all i cared about was my band i didn't give mm -hmm. a shit about jobs 
it kind of started falling apart around here. So I went up to, I'm going to DC. All right. Okay. Like everybody <laughs> goes somewhere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I got to DC and, and I live up there and I have a band up there that's from Daddy Disco with all different people. And it was good. Played out a couple of times, but you know, it was just so hard to live up there. You, you, to go to practice was this 40 minute metro thing out to fucking Maryland. It was just, you know, you worked in some restaurant, you barely could pay your rent. You live very austerely. You just, mm-hmm. you just, you had a few bars you were regular in, you get your drinks, you fucked a few bartenders and waitresses. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was smaller than living in the fan for me. Mm-hmm. Ultimately. In DC. Yeah. 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 So I was like, you know, I can do this in Richmond. I was there about a year and a half and came back. Mm-hmm. Uh, the day I moved there was the day that Marianne Barry got busted. That bitch set me up <laughs> smoking crack. So that was a big kind of neat thing. Um, but I met a lot of cool people up there. I already, I was kind of regular up there for shows for many years. Stayed with Mike Clayberg. He was Malefice at the time. Linda Sue was his girlfriend. She's like this well-known punk rock chick, Asian-looking girl. She's a real cool chick up there. And they, you know, introduced me to all the right people. I already knew a few punks up there. And we just, you know, I had enough to do. But ultimately, just coming back here was just easier. In Richmond, you can live cheaper. You can be whoever you want to be. And as long as you have a little consistency about yourself, you can you can make it here. So I came back, started. I went back to the trolley where I worked for a while when mm-hmm. I, before I moved to D.C. They didn't need anybody. This guy, two two blocks down, remember that guy used to come clean the walk-in sometimes, Johnny Javos? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's opened this place down the street. There's no awning up yet. Just knock on the door because they weren't open. They were open the next week. Sidewalk Cafe. So, oh, yeah, I remember you. Yeah, okay, yeah, you start. You can do the, be the day cook next week. And I walked in there, cowboy boots, peg jeans, a cramps T-shirt, totally, you know, ill-prepared. After about a week of figuring out what the hell keeping a real job was for a while, I was, you know, dressed properly, in the proper shoes, taking it seriously. Six years I worked there. So from the day it opened. At Sidewalk? Yeah. Wow. From the day it opened, I was the day cook and then for three years. And for three years after that, I was a daytime bartender waiter. So, you know, and, you know I ended up saving about $6,000, which is a fucking planet of money to mm-hmm. me. I'd never seen $1,000. I, I lived very small mm-hmm. in some Austerely, house. I like that word, which yeah. you said before, you know. Austerity was means. the game. I've always been a good saver because I grew up poor as shit. And I was like, look, I can, I've already been there. It's no fun. I'd rather have at least something, you know, even if it's not much. But I wasn't smart with, like, I didn't know where to put it. I just was saving it in a box. Mm-hmm. And Javos goes, and he was always kind of a dick to me, actually. Even I think he revalued me, but he always, he hated that I had this band and this free life, I think, because he was very locked into being a, a restaurant grunt from the time he was a teenager, never mm-hmm. went to college. I mean, it wasn't like he was jealous of me because he had it better than me, but he just, there was something about That's my his life style, that always was lovingly seemed, dickish. He, he was, you know? <laughs> it was a jealousy that he always kind of kept me down in a way. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And, he, and so he knew I knew a lot about Mexican food. You know, Northern California. My family was in California. I've always loved Mexican food. And to him, compared to him, I knew a shit ton. Mm-hmm. And, and in this town, there was hardly any Mexican food mm-hmm. in the 90s. So he goes, look, if you get the $6,000 for 18 grand, we can get into that old, you know, fatty's place it was called at the time. You mm-hmm. know, Mojo's is now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was like, wow, that's all my money, man. I said, I don't think so, man. That sounds like a bad idea. <laughs> so about a week goes by, I was like, I can't sleep. Smoking <laughs> cigarettes, change my I'll do it. I can't. What am I gonna do? Not take the one fucking opportunity anybody in my life's ever gonna give my sorry piece of shit white trash Virginia Beach felonious <laughs> ass. So anyway, I uh, was like, okay, let's get busy. We cleaned that fucking frat boy shit house. It was awful. I Made it something kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Um, the yuppies gravitated right to it, which I did not see happening. All I wanted was. My, my place, Marvin's, had closed. My, my bar where I hung out about a year before, I just wanted a place for Marvin's to relive its 
aging punk rock people drinking beer and schnapps life. Right. And uh, it ended up being this popular restaurant, best restaurant of the year, Style Magazine, 1997. By three years in, two years into it, we're buying Javos out because he's driving us fucking crazy. Who was the other we? Oh, uh, Rick Lyons, who now owns Supper and Dinner. Oh, yeah. Okay. So it's me, Jen, uh, Rick, Rick and, and Johnny. And uh, me and Rick bought Johnny out. He was just too much of a tyrant. And then we were kind of losing Too many steam. chefs in the soup and yeah, all that shit, too. Yeah, too many chefs spoiled the soup. Although he yeah. never worked a shift there and made plenty of money. <laughs> but uh, the bottom started getting weird and different. Started getting it, going from that fret boy, let's go down there and watch right, boy, boy play and, to right. more of the you know more ghetto-y kind of atmosphere that's mm-hmm. become, frankly. Mm-hmm. And people weren't going passing banditos on their way to the bottom anymore. So it just sort of slowed down. Yeah. And it was like our third year, fourth year, it just sort of really sucking. And we're like, what are we going to do here? We, it's all we got. So we got this other guy, Alan Delforn, this older sort of landlord developer guy who I'd known since I worked for him in my first job in Richmond at Max's Corner Cafe in 87. Uh, he always kind of looked out for me as like a, a fucked up little nephew guy. Ultimately, he exploited me like they all do. I've swam with the sharks, baby, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I'm still around, and none of them, they'd all be dancing on my grave right now as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> but uh, anyway, he joins in, fills us a little money. It, it's a little more stable. We uh, moved the shop. Well, actually, at that time, we opened up Starlight. Oh, that's, that's what I was going to say. Out I that was... Yeah, the Devil's Kitchen went down in one year. Love Scotty Price and Vaughn Turner, but they, they they pretty much just didn't do much to it and drank a lot mm-hmm. and gave a lot of shots away. I love those guys, but they didn't know how to run a restaurant. Yeah. So we went in there, cleaned it up, opened up. That was successful pretty much. The Surfish Station, right? That's no, what... no. This was Starlight was. Oh, you talking about Starlight. Starlight. What, what was that? Oh, that was Sobel's before. Oh, Sobel's. Yeah. And then it was Devil's Kitchen with Scotty Price I don't and Vaughn Turner the for Devil... one year. Yeah. Okay. So it was pretty much Sobel's and then us, but we're and it's still there. But um, and that was fun. It was see, it's the right place, at the right time. It's not that great now there's a lot of places like that now i guess but at the time this is before the craft beer bullshit yeah and uh it was just a uh, another place to hang out drink red bull mm-hmm. with a bunch of pop colors on a friday night you know i didn't think it was cool but it made money mm-hmm. and i was not afraid uh, i was never mm-hmm. too good to make money mm-hmm. um so that was going on and then we moved the next year that was a one oh two we moved banditos to the place where it was a surf surface station yeah when i used to live in that neighborhood it was a pizza hut delivery yeah, Exxon and an Esso before that. So it's, like a, it's a gas station. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, they had built that other room on the side, which we call non-smoking now. And it was like, it had these bay windows. It was, it had to do a lot to it to make it mm-hmm. nice inside or nicer. And uh, it was worth it because that a parking yeah. lot, man. And yeah, it in, yeah. It was in what I called the Upper Fan back then. Now it's the Museum District. Uh, yes. mm-hmm. And whatever. Upper Fan, man. You know where you mm-hmm. go after you're 30 to be a, a fan loser. Come on now. Mm-hmm. That's where the rentals get, you know, when you get older. It's a 40-year-old people think that's what <laughs> So anyway, uh, that started doing well. And it's by the late 90s. Uh, yeah, about, mm, no, I guess. How long has that been there? That was too, well, I, I remember when Surfer Station was still there early 2000. So you. We were there oh two till now. Okay. 13 years. Thing is, um, in about oh nine. Everything went crazy with the economy. Everything we were making right, money, right. money hand over fist all through the. It was the gay late nineties into the early two thousands for me. Rick and Alan were doing great. Three very different guys, all with different agendas. I always felt I was being undercut by both of those guys as far as respect for the employee. They just didn't respect the positions, mm-hmm. and it was difficult. Mm-hmm. And that was I could live with that because the money was good and bucket. But um, 
then Alan kind of got a little screwy and started wanting out, getting agitated and easily just, just difficult to read. And I, you know, things were getting very unstable without going into too much detail. And I came up with an idea. Look, how about this? I'll take all of Bandito's. You take all of Starlight. We'll buy out Rick because he's acting like he's freaking out anyway. He's like, I'm going to go to Pennsylvania where I'm from. Of course, all the while he's plotting to open up fucking the, the Republic without even telling me. So as mm-hmm. soon as we gave him all that money, he opened some place to completely compete with Banditos. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. fucking pissed me off. Took a bunch mm-hmm. of key employees with him. Oh. People that ultimately I'm glad are gone, but at the time, it's hurtful. Yeah. The smoking thing was changed at the same time. I had to put a $12,000 wall in the middle to make it so we're one of the few smoking bars that exists. Not a lot at the time. These days, it's less of a big deal, but, mm-hmm. you know, that was a big thing. You can't yeah. smoke in bars. What the fuck? Mm-hmm. Um, so he went and did Republic. That crashed and burned in about a year. Wasn't crying. It only a whole took lot a year, huh? Wow. But he's doing much more stable in uh, his lunch and supper. Okay, so that's and that's I'm that's happy Rick. For him. So Rick did Republic, and then he's got lunch and supper. Yes. And the, the people, other guy, the, the, the Rugers over the that, other guy, Alan went got Ruger to go in half them at, at Starlight, and okay. it's, it's all the Rugers now. Alan's kind of uh, I think he's got money in it, but. I think he's he, he's from Miami. He spends a lot of time in Miami. I think his heart is in Miami. He'll retire probably in Miami. Mm-hmm. He's got business interests here. I'm not going to go too much into his personal stuff because I don't even know it that well anymore. But I'll just say that there was a time when he was like an uncle to me, mm-hmm. and it turned out to be – he kind of turned on me, I felt like. Maybe it was part of my fault, but I felt like I really kind of got dicked over by him to some yeah. degree. But at the end of the day, we all got something, and it's what you do with what you're given. Rick yeah. kind of fucked up with his thing. With that's why it was, he had a real struggle to open up lunch and supper. He had to get Ruger in on that too. Yeah, but uh, Ruger and his family pretty much run Starlight for the most part. They got the village. They got village the grill, grill. That they got a bunch of little stuff. City diner. City diner. Yeah, me and my kid go there a lot for you know he likes to get the little soda. I like Josh eggs. and Bert a whole lot. I I just have met, you know talked to them because of Restaurant Depot yeah. and shit. Like they're all fine people. I like the Ruger's mm-hmm. just fine. Ruger. He's, I've never met the the uh, daddy. He does my HVAC and something. Uh, a piece of equipment breaks down. Call Herb. Hey Herb, it's Sean. Come on down. Mm-hmm. All right, see you tomorrow morning. You know it's 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 it's, it's mm-hmm. all cool small towny. But since '09. I was struck with the thing that now you're the only owner, and I didn't know everything. I mean, I was one of three right. guys, and I didn't have all the responsibilities. And a lot of the more critical responsibilities I didn't have. I was the, the back of the house, the kitchen, the menu. Yeah. Uh, the graphics, the, the aesthetics, yeah. but not so much running the business per se. Yeah. And uh, Tracking I, the money. I took to that real quick and found out that I'm pretty good at that. And um, I keep a pretty tight shot. I, I learned a lot about myself that I wouldn't have thought I – had in me because no one ever gave me the encouragement. They always tried to keep me out of it. You know mm-hmm, what I mean? Mm-hmm. I was sort of the, the, the sizzle, the, the funny guy, the, mm-hmm. the being who I was with Chrome daddy and other kind of had a little cachet to it, to certain groups of the community that might not have gone. If it was just another yuppie restaurant mm-hmm. run by some pop color prick. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It had a little punk rockness about it, I guess. Mm-hmm. And uh, these days, at the same time that I took over, Darren had just lost his job due to the economy mm-hmm. in Minnesota, mm-hmm. where you were living. Yeah. And he it was shit out of luck. And I was like, just get the fuck back to Richmond, man. We'll, we'll put you to work at Bandito's. He was like, you know what? Hell yeah. Like, I might have been, that's my home, kind of. Because he's, he's from Virginia. He just spent mm-hmm. a lot of time in Minnesota. So he's been back ever since. Still there. A, a, a very, very important cog in the booking bands. Local band. Does most of the local band bookings. Oh, yeah. He's kind of my general manager, you could call him. Mm-hmm. And he's been my best friend since 87 when we both moved here. And he's from equally clueless background. <laughs> we both kind of grew up together from 20 on. 
in Richmond, Virginia, for the most part. So I got my best friend back because he moved for 10 years away in like the late 90s. Mm -hmm. and got him back. And because of our relationship, was so uniquely tight and forgiving and kind of just, we like to think of it as above, just two dudes. Um, because of that, he, he the, the relationship as I'm his boss, he's my employee, works because it just not doesn't have to be that. Mm -hmm. He's not. He would not disrespect me in such a way as to pull rank. The ego shit's not in there. He would right. not make me. He, I would never do it, and he doesn't make me do it. Mm -hmm. And that's the deal you have to have. Mm -hmm. And we are very fortunate to have that. I love that guy. He's like a brother. When I have a living trust for my son, it's my mom who is the executor, and he's second. Okay, he can sign checks at my restaurant. That's a lot of trust in a person. Do you feel like talking about what happened with the viceroy? Oh. Yeah. Um, is that just you win some, you lose some, or you know, you learn yeah. anything there? Or, you know, well, I learned that. I, I learned what I learned from there is do what you know and mm -hmm. be who you are, and don't mm -hmm. jump on a fad. In my defense, I didn't know there was a fad happening when we thought of it because it kind of happened the year we opened. Yeah. All these other restaurants opened. I had no idea that was going. And what on. was the fad? The farm to table just, thing, yeah, or, or the, be having wild lots boar of on the menu? Beer taps, yeah. Lots of pork belly Expensive bullshit. Overhead shit. And just yeah. two. Fancy, a frou frouy foodie menu. That's never been who I am. In fact, I laugh yeah. at it and make fun. You'll never see me drink the craft beer. And, and and I don't eat fancy very often. I enjoy good food, but to me, good food doesn't have to be fancy. It's just not who I am. Mm -hmm. Um, And pork belly, fuck you. It's bacon. Yeah, it's bacon already <laughs> over there. But um, no, but I learned be who you are, know who you are, and, and just work within your skill sets. Mm -hmm. Don't be afraid to learn something new, but don't make it lose your ass while you're doing it. I learned don't go into business and bring your significant other involved into it. Why don't I go into detail about her? Mm -hmm. uh, we're very friendly. We have a very, we're, we're of course divorcing very close to the end of our mm -hmm. divorce. We, we share custody. I have merit most of the time. Mm -hmm. Very friendly and flexible situation with that, just for the record. But you know, it's hard to work with that person, mm -hmm. especially when your marriage is so rocky anyway. Mm -hmm. um, and it had been, you know, I couldn't say no. She it just can't. It just doesn't work. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Maybe it worked for some people. It didn't work for me. And the other partner was a guy I didn't know what I was getting into with Dave Bender. I still consider Dave Bender a buddy of mine, even though he likes the Dallas Cowboys, like some kind of jackass. <laughs> but... <laughs> Um, I, he wasn't as much of a he, he doesn't work like I work, we work differently mm -hmm. and too differently and I'll leave it at that we worked very differently I'll say about Dave when we were losing our ass month to month I mean put money in instead of making it for the last mm -hmm. you know three quarters of a year um, he was always there with his half you know and that's really was the most important thing yeah. uh, Joe worked really hard trying to make things happen we just it just didn't jive uh, yeah. there's just so many we're behind the eight ball in so many ways and so much competition and after the first few months, it really dropped off in business. And the chef was had terrible food costs. He, he was an egotistical mm -hmm. young guy with a lot of talent that had mm -hmm. no concept of food costs. We're talking like 60 and 70% food costs some mm -hmm. months. It's insane. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a guaranteed fail. Uh, some good employees there. Some good memories there. But by and large, I lost my ass and was able to sell out low to buddies. And, which is good. Hey, did you buy that building? No, we never. It was it's a Bandasian thing. They were the Bandasians. I will say they were kind enough to help us get out of the situation because mm -hmm. they said we're you know we're gonna let these guys. You had to put a lot of money into that place too. Like the floor was about to fall through, right? In we, the back. We, we, we did that place from the bottom piece of dust to the to the roof. Yeah. Every plug, every pipe, every everything. I mean, change beams in the ceiling. Whole. I mean, we put three hundred thousand dollars in that place. 
Um, I lost probably personally every bit of $200,000 in that two-year period. Mm. And to this day, I'll be paying off one loan that's left over that was my portion, probably another $40,000 probably for the next two or three years. But at least, believe it or not, it's t- terrible as that sound, at, at this point, I can see the loss and a steady drip that I can control. Instead of last year, this time last year, I was in total stressed hell. My marriage was totally falling apart. We're just about, just about time we kind of broke up. And uh, money, it's like a, a, mine, a minefield of just I mean, we were just losing more than we were making. Me and Dave were just beleaguered. Mm -hmm. By November, we were so just thankful to get the fuck out of this lease. Mm -hmm. You get this shitty deal from the fucking buddies, place I'd never have gone to. Don't give a fuck really about now. Mm -hmm. Nothing against them. It's just not my scene, never going to be. Um, this, and, and it's perfect for banditos because there's no competition with mm-hmm. each other. It's a different type of crowd. There's yeah. no crossover. It's, it's two different types of crowds. Yeah. And that's cool. Um, so it really, it's a harmonious thing going right now. I'm healing better. Banditos has always been steady as a rock. Mm-hmm. And uh, thank God for that. Good people there. I run it very tightly. And um, in this last, you know, eight months, I've been able to pay keep up with the loss and sort of slowly rebuild my little financial yeah. life you know i'll have a little savings now instead of just a constant just oh, right hemorrhaging you know, money mortgage well i mean i've seen that happen a lot of times in my i mean i've almost so I through it that's the important part yeah. yeah yeah and you know i find this shit like you, this kind of a story is as cool to me as the story of like the, the band you know because it's, I mean, we don't tend to think of it as being particularly cool to start a business and to maintain a business and to take on the responsibility and find a place for your fucking friends to work and, like, you know, to make contribute to the economy instead of hating on everything. I dropped that's out going of sculpture school, okay? Mm-hmm. I, don't, I didn't know <laughs> dick about business. <laughs> Nothing. All yeah. I ever knew was how to save my money because you got to have groceries. Mm-hmm. And frankly, I had to learn everything on the fly. I made a million fucking mistakes. I have the most potholed how not to do business. Go to school, learn shit, do things right. Don't don't be me. I'm just lucky enough to have what I have and be able to take care of this kid in a proper way. Mm-hmm. It's all I give a shit about. If I didn't have him, I wouldn't give a fuck about much, frankly. Yeah. He's eight. And he needs everything, and I love him. He's the best thing in my life, and I'm doing having a great time taking care of him. Um, but uh, me being a businessman is to fucking laugh. I'd well, become something, I think, but I wasn't I think coming you can from be a anything. Punk rock businessman, the same way you're a punk rock musician. You just fucking get into it and you do it and you learn it as you go. Just you're like right. you learn the guitar Steve as you I, go. Do, that's right. <laughs> we we make too much of it, you know. And like I'd love to see more people in this town say, you know, the way to make Richmond cool is for you to fucking take on some fucking risk, start a business, do this shit instead of complaining about all the crap the city keeps trying to drop on you or, you know. To Walmart or Target, do some shit. Start a business. I have my detractors, but I think you know? the people that support and care about what I do and who I am. One thing that I'll say is that motherfucker came from nothing. You can mm-hmm. like him or not, and and that and that means a lot to me because to me that's a a, a a sentiment of respect. Yeah. And I was never looking for any of that, but sometimes I, I never give myself any credit. But once in a while, you have to look at yourself in the mirror and say, you know, you're not that people. That's a piece of shit. Yeah, you don't read enough. You're a fucking pig. You eat all kinds of gross <laughs> shit. You, you, you know, you don't know how to fucking, you know, treat a woman. Wait, you're, you suck, man. Oh, but you know what? There's one or two things to do all right. You give yourself a little pet on the back for that. Yeah. You're a good dad. You're keeping the business running. 
just don't worry about women. They don't exist in your life anymore. You're unfuckable. You're practically hey, 50, so that doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> I'm with you on that, man. I just need to fucking stay out of that game. <laughs> Honestly, it doesn't even mean that much to me anymore. Got the kid. That's the That's thing. really my love. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming over, man. I really enjoyed this. My pleasure. I learned a lot. Right. All right. Yeah, gotta get out of that game. At least for a little while. <clears throat> Not doing me any good. Not doing me any favors. I think I'm just gonna concentrate on the lining the nest, stacking chips, putting the monies in the bank, all that stuff, man. Whatever, whatever is up with me and women, fucking 45 years old. I'm still doing stuff that I just, I stand. I have, you know, there's, a, there's an immature, intelligent human being inside me that observes what I'm doing and says, "What the hell are you doing?" Why are you doing that? And there's this other part of me going, uh, just gonna. And, uh, goddamn, I hate that part of me. But what was it? I was talking to my cousin about it. She's like, you gotta, you have to accept your shadow side. You have to let your shadow side in. Fuck my shadow side. Pain in the ass. What good is knowing all this shit and having all of this awareness and knowing how to behave, being an educated man, being a feminist, being a liberal being an intellectual, being educated, when you still act like a fucking lunatic dipshit at the end of the day when it comes to women. I swear to God, it's not worth it. It's fucking my pride. Too much this pride fucking with ya. I just haven't got this figured out yet. If anybody has got any ideas for me, I'd be a, like, maybe you could be my mentor and you know, tutor any of the guys that are happily married or managed to maintain a relationship for a long time. I'd love to hear how you do it because... I do not know how. And, then, and so often it winds up with these burnt bridges. People don't want to talk to me anymore. So, yep, that's I've there, here I am talking about that again. Anyway, if you feel sorry for me, perhaps you can go on and uh, practice a little Donna and give me a little money to help me go buy some hankies to cry into or uh, take some detachment classes or you know actually i'm i'm gonna start seeing a guy and my insurance doesn't cover because i haven't paid my deductible yet so you can contribute to my mental health fund and help me uh, work out my attachment issues my fear of rejection um my anger um what else have i got going on i've probably just you know the whole array my friend said to me the other day he's like you know you seem kind of like you're codependent but it's like this twisted kind of inverted kind of weird kind of codependent like yeah i think it's narcissism that's what you call that but uh you know whatever i haven't given up yet i'm going to keep working on it so if you want to contribute to me getting my fucking head together and getting my head straight you can go on the tantric conversation website page make a donation and just put a little note you know get well soon help me with my insanity i would really appreciate it need all the help i can get and uh yeah with that i'll pass peace